You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger. Three good songs. Hey everybody, welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I am J.D. Rieger. This episode is extra special for me, sorry if I say that a lot, because not only is it an interesting conversation with an old friend who has done some amazing things in music, as you'll hear, but it also feels like finally shaking off an old demon or righting a previous wrong. If you'll indulge me for just a moment. Some of you may recall my failed attempt at launching a podcast back in 2013. The short story is, the reason it failed was because while I was putting together what would have been my fourth episode, my laptop died, and being the depressed alcoholic in denial that I was at the time, I let the whole situation deflate me to a point where instead of doing the interview again or recutting the episode, I just gave up on myself entirely and quit making a podcast. This week's guest on this podcast, Back to the Light, was in fact the guest for that lost interview. So, I'm hoping I can finally stop beating myself up for at least this one thing, the one that got away. Now, without further ado, you know him as an engineer and or producer for artists such as Big Star, The Afghan Wigs, Stevie Ray Vaughan, B.B. King, and friends of the show Centromatic. He also mixed and cut my last solo album to vinyl, FYI. He currently runs his own vinyl cutting lathe out of Sam Phillips Studio under the name Takeout Vinyl, where he has cut some truly legendary albums recently. I'm so glad we got to do this while I was in Memphis. Here's my conversation with Jeff Powell. Jeff, thanks for joining me on the show. Hello, it's great to see you, man. Yeah, it's good to see you. Good to be in person. This yeah. is only the second in-person interview I've done for the podcast. Oh, wow. That's, that damn pandemic will do that, man. Man, that, that demic will get you. <laughs> Uh, so we were just talking about how we're both Cardinal fans. I know you're from Missouri. Uh, what was, is it? It's Bowling Green, right? Yeah, Bowling Green, Missouri. It's a little town of about 3,000 people, about 60 miles north of St. Louis, 10 okay. miles off the Mississippi River. So I was, I've always been a river rat. Is there any kind of music scene in Bowling Green to speak of? Absolutely none. Um, you know, what was it that... that that movie, A Mighty Wind, it, one of the lines that cracked me up so much about that when the guy was saying, I was abused as a child, mostly musically. <laughs> but um, you could say that about my hometown, but I mean, it's, it's, uh, my mother was a music teacher, so I was raised in a musical family, but um, no cool records, unless you think Jim Neighbors is, and Eddie Arnold are cool. You know, just, just they were more... It wasn't all classical stuff, but just really square stuff, Lawrence Welk and all that crap. So I had to, I I was, we had KC95 radio. That was our big rock radio station, you know, we could barely get in Bowling Green. It, sometimes you'd have to drive out on the country roads to pick it up a little better, head south a little bit. But uh, other than that was, our, our radio station was called KPCR, Cow Pasture Radio. And it was a little, literally in a barn in the middle of a cow pasture. And they did, you know, farm reports and didn't even play that much music so i had to get there on my own when i went to college at mizzou's was when my eyes were really open and i was exposed to all kinds of stuff there 
did you always think you wanted to be a producer and an engineer or did you at one time think you wanted to be on stage my first instinct was that that's a good question um my uh my first rock concert which i was not allowed to go to was when i walked into the checker dome thin lizzie was on the stage they were opening for journey of all things i think on like the infinity tour for journey or something you know one of their early records but i walked in and there's phil line out on stage and i mean i've never been the same since so of course yeah as a young teenager sneaking out of the house and all that crap you know first instinct is like i gotta get me a guitar and that's you know i gotta learn how to i want to be i want to do that and you know i've always played guitar and piano and trumpet and stuff like that um but it it really i figured out pretty quickly that i wasn't going to be on the stage doing that um and i noticed that guy sitting there with that big giant console at the concerts and started checking him out like wow now that's cool you know and staring at the back of record albums you know at these studios i there weren't any recording studios around us back then um but i started thinking that maybe that's what i want to do but i didn't have anybody to ask advice about it when i went to uh university of missouri they just kind of looked at me when i said i think i want to be a recording engineer and i said well why don't you double major in music and electrical engineering and those kind of go to get and nothing goes together in those two majors you know so i took hours and hours of stuff you can merge that together and then maybe go maybe you can get into university of miami they had a recording program back then so i was going to try to do that it's just a bad plan you know and i ended up falling out and you know bartending and waiting tables and stuff and trying to figure out where to go and i found out about the recording program in memphis and so that's how i ended up in memphis tennessee is i came down here to go to school at the time it was called memphis state and they had a recording program and you know as soon as i walked in and saw the place and just all the microphones and knobs and stuff i was definitely hooked and i i knew that's what i was going to do did you graduate another i'll try to keep the story short but um i i ended up getting an internship at first at kiva studios which was gary bell's place and then fairly i was there about a year and then i ended up over at ardent studios so i was working in the studio i still had to wait tables because they didn't really pay me uh at first over there and so i needed something to earn money so i was doing that and going to school and i just ran myself into the ground and finally you know I just had to quit one of those three things. It wasn't going to be the studio, and I needed money to eat. So I only had my senior project and a few electives left to go, but I, I dropped out. But um, as the years went on, they would I would get asked quite frequently to come talk to the recording classes and tell them about my experiences and, and you know do workshops and things of that sort. And I did this one semester, and the, the head of the program, Jeff Klein, said, can I see you in my office after class? And I went, oh, God, it's been a while since I've heard that. <laughs> you know? But I went in there, and he's got my transcript all covered in his desk. He's like, dude, do you know you have like 230-something hours and no degree? What, what's this all about? And um, I told him the story, and he goes, why don't you come back and finish? You could turn in any of the records that you work on. That can be your senior project, and then what is it you got to take a biology course and some electives you can get your degree man then you can come back and be a adjunct professor we'd love to have you come you know work with the students more and it just kind of hit me i went you know what i think i'm going to so in 2008 i went back and i finished my degree uh the record i turned in for my senior project was i was working on a denzel washington movie at the time called the great debaters and i actually to be a smart ass i turned it in it came out the day that 
my project was doing, I turned it in with the price. I bought it at the store and turned it in with the sticker on it still. So nice. That's a baller move right <laughs> yeah, there, man. Yeah. So, uh, my, my mom was happy. It only took me what 27 years to graduate college, but she was very happy about it. So I did finally graduate. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, going back to your early days at Ardent, do you remember like what some of the first projects you worked on were? Absolutely. Um, the very first one I worked on as an assistant engineer for John Hampton was the Vaughn Brothers. Um, I had met Stevie and mostly his crew guys. They had done InStep over at Kiva when I was, you know, the runner over there and getting them food and fetching him barbecue and stuff. So we knew each other. We were hallway buddies. We weren't close friends or anything. But um, when all the gear started coming in, they were loading in. I see Renee, his guitar tech, and some of the other guys like, hey, Jeff, what's going on? You know, and Hampton was looking. He's like, you you know all these guys? And I go, yeah, I just worked over at Kiva. I, they were around for three or four months. So, yeah, I know. He's like, do you want to be the assistant on this? Because I was just there to help load in. And there were like three or four guys ahead of me. I was like, well, I'd love to. But, man, there'd be I can't just leapfrog over all these guys. They you know they're in front of me in line he goes i said do you want the gig I'm like well yeah so that's i got i got the gig and you know the very first thing i worked on was a multi-platinum record due to the unfortunate circumstances that stevie passed away a month before it came out sure but now rogers was the producer and it just my eyes were wide open and um i realized one of the things back in those days that was hilarious to me is you know, I was pretty scared and intimidated. What goes on when the doors close? Because I'm never allowed in there. There's a lot of Game Boy being played, you know. <laughs> um, walking in there, it's like now everybody's staring at their phones. Everybody's playing Game Boy and they're listening to music. And but but it went well, and I learned a lot. And after that gig, Hampton kind of took me under his wing, and you know, said, you know, I can't pay you much, but you want to be my guy. And um, yeah. Yeah, so that's how I really got my start. I got I got in there pretty quickly. Didn't that uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan stuff get some sort of Grammy nod for you? Uh, that or was part the, of the group. The sky is crying. He, yeah. They came. Jimmy came back after Stevie had passed, and we had every tape that Stevie had ever recorded on in Studio A all spread out on the floor, and we went through all kinds of stuff and put that compilation together and. Um, I actually, there was a machine then, this was before Pro Tools days, there was a machine, a digital editing machine called the Studer Diaxis, and I got good on that. And so I could do these incredible edits that you couldn't do with the razor blade, as easily at least. So if you listen to Little Wing, Little Wing won a Grammy that year for the the best rock instrumental, maybe. Um, but on the end of it, the reason it had never come out before because the end was all they'd abandoned it and there were a whole bunch of tapes so i actually put that together out of nine different takes at the very end if you listen with headphones you can hear echoes from stevie's guitar note what was on the tape first echo in the drum mics before he plays a note sometimes so oh. you can you put the headphones on listen to the especially the end you'll hear the edits but they go by without you noticing most of the time so so yeah that was pretty cool the first time I came across your name on the back of a record was with the Afghan wigs, of course. Okay. So I just want to know, of course, I want to hear some Greg Dooley stories, but how did you get involved with that band in the first place? Okay. So I was working with Hampton still. Hampton was scheduled to be the engineer and, um, Greg and Greg Dooley and John Curley were going to, John Curley was the bass player in the band and Greg and he were co-producing the record so um 
we we set up and got started recording and at the time hampton was really a hot mixer guy all these nashville producers were coming down to memphis and these country guys and hampton would mix for them and they thought they were really being rebellious because they weren't doing the same exact cookie cutter thing they were doing in nashville and one of those was travis tritt and so you know when travis had something to do hampton had pretty much had to drop what he was doing and and jump ship so uh that's what happened he had to he had to leave the leave the afghan weeks gig like on the second or third day he got some phone call and he just asked by then we'd kind of buddied up we had a lot of laughs in the studios right off the bat and we, we all liked each other so um they're like is it cool if jeff takes over and they're like yeah so from like the third or fourth day i was i was in the hot seat and so we continued tracking and overdubbing and when it came time to mix um they were still gonna let hampton mix the record because i didn't have really any big credits yet for mixing and so that was the plan and uh we got finished like a couple days early and hampton still wasn't done on the other project he was working on so Dooley was like do you want to try mixing one since we got the time anyway and i was like okay so um i i started in on one and uh curly was kind of curly's and john curly's an engineer as well so he was by my side and he was kind of you know we were you know doing it together more or less i remember Dooley went outside to shoot baskets in the back parking lot he goes you guys do it and i'll come check it out in a little while so he comes back in after about i don't know maybe an hour or so and he goes let's hear what you got and so i hit go on i hit play on the tape machine and started playing and got about to the first course and he said can you turn that off so i hit stop i remember he took one bounce of the basketball and he went you guys couldn't be farther away from what i'm hearing in my head that's terrible and you know, I just on <laughs> your first first major label record that you're mixing, you know, it's a great first hour, two hour start, and I was just, you know, oh God, what do I do? He goes, matter of fact, Jeff, can you give me a John minute alone? So I was no problem, man. So I left the room, and I went down to John Fry's office, who's the owner of Arden, and I said, I think I'm getting fired right now. I'm not positive, but uh, we started on a mix, and Greg hated it, so him and him and John are in there talking right now, but I think we'll probably end up just saying wait for until Hampton's ready. And John was really nice, and he was like, "Look, don't worry about it. This happens. You know, you're young. You got plenty more records to mix. Just this was the original plan anyway. Just uh, you know, don't don't let it get you down. Very very supportive. And so I go wait outside the door of Studio A, and I start hearing yelling and screaming, and and um, <laughs> I didn't know what the hell was going on. So finally. Dooley said, come on back in here. And I sat down and he goes, look, um, here's why it's going to go down, man. Uh, John, John's going to go home back to Cincinnati and I'm the producer now. We're no longer co-producing this. And I don't, I want to see what you would do just on your own without anybody telling you what to do. So try one on your own. Let's see how it goes. And do you remember which one it was? I don't. Mm. I don't. Um, but uh, so Curly went home. It, you know, it was uncomfortable because he was mad, you know. And uh, I jumped in on it and 
Greg came in and listened after I'd been working on it two or three hours. He said, that's fantastic, man. That's great. That's just what I'm hearing. And can you mix the whole record? So I'm like, well, now I got to deal with Hampton because he's scheduled for 10 days to mix this. And I don't want to steal a gig from my mentor. So we had to go in there and Hampton, uh, Greg explained everything. He goes, I think we want to just give Jeff a chance. I know you're so busy, man. If that won't bum you out, we're just going to have Jeff mix the record if you're cool with that. And you know, Hampton joked about it. He's like, pal, you stealing my gig, man, or whatever. <laughs> but he was just he was just messing with me. And he was totally cool about it. So that's how I... That's how I ended up mixing the Gentleman record, and um, you know it did it did wonders for me. I mean, it, it got me on the map, and that's how more more and more records just started coming in after that. And the band too. I think that's still their most well known album. Yeah, probably so. And and you know, I kind of once I was in the family, so to speak. You know, I ended up doing pretty much everything until the modern era here in the last ten years or whatever. They broke up for a while, but. Um, you know, I did Black Love, and we did that in Seattle mostly. Um, and the 1965 record was a blast. We did that at Kingsway down in uh, New Orleans, Daniel Lanois' mansion. So. Oh, yeah. I think I've heard some funny stories about that experience. <laughs> yeah. Is there something about a hot tub? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's uh, it's, a lot of people know this story. Uh, but, <laughs> oh, gosh, you see, how's the, how's the gentle way to t- – basically, I, the, the short way to say it is – um, at one point, I guess Greg's it was Greg's birth going to be Greg's birthday, and in the back of Kingsway, there's a patio and a, what they called it a French bath, but it's basically a, a hot tub, you know, like a not as big as a swimming pool, but bigger than a normal just you know sauna or whatever. And uh, he just kind of started joking around, like I'm going to have a hot tub stripper party for my birthday, and um, <laughs> I'm going to invite some strippers over, and da 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 da. And the word got back to the studio manager, and she was, she had a talk with him. She goes, man, that's not cool because we're not really zoned to be a studio. And if you guys are out there making noise at 2 or 3 in the morning and carrying on, our neighbors, if they want to call us in and shut us down, all they have to do is say the word, and we're done. So not cool. Please don't. And he, it started kind of an argument of between – you know, he basically was like, as much money as I'm paying, if I want to have friends over, then that's what I'm going to do. And so it kind of escalated from there. And his birthday came and, you know, they had, there were a few strippers there. You know, we were looking through the blinds and giggling like, you know, eighth graders. <laughs> but uh, nothing happened. They weren't wild or loud or it was really kind of, you know, it was very low key. So now the, the ball was in. <laughs> the studio manager's court you know was she going to really kick us out because she said don't do that and he did it and so i remember getting called on the carpet daniel lanois had me come to to lunch the next day and um he was talking to me about it and asking me what I, what, what they should we do and i said well it's your place i'm just the engineer i'm not the producer or anything I'm, I'm doing what greg the producer is telling me to do that's who i'm answering to i respect your property i respect your equipment i would never let anything happen to it but uh, this is another whole nother matter it's up to you guys what you want to do we're almost done you know and so basically that conversation wrapped up and the next morning I came down and um, the assistant engineer was kind of staring at the ground, sad sacking when I came down. And 
I'm like, what's the, you could tell something was wrong. I'm like, what's the matter, man? He goes, man, it just got back to me that Greg said as much money as he was paying for this place, if he wanted to stand up and take a shit on the console and watch me, he could watch me clean it up. He should be able to do that. <laughs> and so I'm like, man, I don't think Greg would say that honestly, but if he did, you know, you're a big boy, call him on it, ask him. Um, he goes, no. You know, it's bullshit, but you you guys will be done in a few days. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut, and we'll just get through this. Late that night, we the hours, by the way, that we were working, we were working from like 7 o'clock at night to like 8 in the morning or something like that. So our schedules were all flipped upside down, too. And it was a residential studio. We lived there. Um, so anyway, the session was over for the night. It's probably 3 or 4 in the morning. And... Uh, we're all done. I go to get a beer and I'm in the kitchen and the assistant comes in and he goes, you gotta come here and see this. And I went, what? We all go all the way up to the third floor and in the linen closet, somebody had taken a shit and wiped. So that proves it was predetermined because they brought some <laughs> toilet paper with them. So there was a pile of shit there with some to used toilet paper. <laughs> And, he, and the assistant was like, I can't believe he did this. And I go, man, I don't think, I don't think it was him. But somebody did. And that's what his point was like. Well, somebody did. So I got, I called the studio manager, got her up. She came over there and she had a fit, man. And so she called Greg up immediately. Greg comes back over there. We didn't know what was going to happen, but there was, there was yelling and screaming and, Greg denied doing it. He's like, I didn't do that. And we're, we all end up in the kitchen, sitting around the big table there. And one of the things that was hilarious is Greg's, Greg's defense was, he goes, I think anybody in here that knows me, if I was going to do, number one, I didn't do that. Number two, I didn't say that I was going to do that. That was somebody else who said, as much as you're paying, you should be able to da, 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 da. He says, I didn't even say that. Number three, if I was going to do something like that, I wouldn't sneak up to the third floor in the linen closet. I think I would stand up and say, hey, everybody, look at me, and I would shit on the console, you know? And everybody's like, that's pretty screwed up defense, but I think he's got a point there, you know? And so finally, it just kind of came to a whole culmination of like, I, I don't care who did it. You guys are out of here. And then it was like, you can't kick us out because we're leaving. You know, and there was more screaming and yelling and <laughs> Dooley left and slammed the door. And, um, you know, it was one of those moments where we just couldn't resist. And so everybody's just dead quiet, staring at the floor, completely uncomfortable. And I can't remember, somebody said, does this mean we're not going to do Stonehenge tonight? <laughs> and somebody shot back, just like in the movie, like, no, we're not doing fucking Stonehenge tonight. So anyway, that's, that's, that's it. We were, we were out of it. We get, we, we were out of there. Did you ever ask him after the fact, like, Hey man, level oh, with me. Yeah. It's a, it's a running joke. We all did. It's, it's no one's ever figured out. We were, we've even talked about making a little documentary about it. You know, everybody's a suspect. Like it could have been you, pal, you were burnt out and you wanted to go home to Memphis and it could have been, it could have been the maid who had a, a, a fling, you know, that and was shunned. And maybe she heard of that story and went up to, to frame him. Whoever did it was framing I him. I mean, Jeff, let's be honest. It could have been you. It could have been me, but it wasn't. Um, <laughs> one thing that was hilarious that Curly did when they <laughs> – I can't believe this. But they took some of the poop and put it <laughs> – they put it in a 
freezer bag and put it in the freezer to save it. I don't know in case they were ever going to have to go have to court. DNA over yeah, yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, nothing like that ever happened. But John Curley made Christmas cards that year and sent them to all of us. And there's a picture of all of us sitting around the kitchen, and he just drew an arrow to the freezer, and he goes, "That's where they put the poop." And it was the best <laughs> Christmas card I ever got. <laughs> That's a pretty great story. Yeah, it's 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 nuts, man. But I mean, like I say, I've heard I, some people have asked me about it. Some people have told me about it, and I just listened as if I didn't know and heard the different versions that are out there. But um, it still remains a mystery to this day. The other band that you worked with at Ardent that I want to ask about before we move on to other things is uh, Big Star and Alex Chilton. Yeah. When did you first work with Alex? It was on one of his solo things, right? Yeah, it was on the record that ended up being called A Man Called Destruction. I love that record. Yeah, that's, it's, it's an interesting story, too. So um, it came time to do the record. I was At the time, I was a staff engineer for Ardent, so you know I was on payroll. Well, it kind of, Alex had signed a, you know, a deal with Ardent to do a couple of solo records. He'd made one called Clichés, I think, that was already finished, and it was just acoustic songs. They put that out, and so this was going to – he was getting a full band together, and – you know, do the whole thing. Well, I, I'm not really sure to this day how it ended up being me, but whether nobody was really jumping at the chance to work with Alex, I don't know due to past experiences with him. He'd had a few rough ones with a couple of the guys there. Um, but they're like, you want to do it? And I was like, Hell yes, I want to do it. So, um, you know, the night before we started, he came in and he was like, super cool he's just like hey man just do your thing you know if you want to get drum sounds up tonight that'd be great i'll come in and listen in the morning like sure so i think we started with doug garrison was on drums from the iguanas he was the first there were a couple different drummers on the session but i think he was the one started and so i dialed in the drum sounds and you know um got it ready to go so alex comes in the next day and he's let's hear what you got so I started playing, and he listened a little bit. He goes, "Nah, that's pretty cool, but are you putting any EQ on there? And I said, yeah, a little bit. He goes, can I hear it with it off, just flat? And so I played it back with no EQ on it, and just kind of, it was a kick drum, I think. It was just kind of flappy and woofy sounding and just, you know, not not a great sound, at least what is what I, the way I was thinking at the time. And he goes, wow, that sounds really stupid. I, I like that. It's like, don't don't put an EQ on the kick drum. He goes, are you doing anything to the snare? And I go, yeah, a little bit. And he goes, can I hear that with the EQ out? And so we did that. He just started kind of chuckling because it just lost all its high end and its cut and kind of turned dull pretty fast. Um, and he's like, yeah, man. He goes, matter of fact, Jeff, you know, and I'm not just saying the drums. He goes, but no EQ on this record. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. And as a young engineer, I've, you know, I think he was really just testing me to see if I had a bug up my ass. Like, well, I can't do that. I have to EQ the kick and the snare. But I just went along with it and said, okay, you're the producer, man, whatever you want. So um, we recorded the whole record with no EQ. And then it came time to mix. And... Again, I don't know if he did this to to annoy John Fry, but he ordered like I think probably ten Pultec EQs from a rental company in Nashville, which are tube EQs and they're really nice and warm sounding and and um, they're beautiful. 
but so we got this whole stack of EQs. I mean, we're on a Neve console with EQ and compressor on every channel if you wanted to use it, and it sounded good. Sure. But he wanted these, and so we get all these in. Took takes forever to get it all hooked up, and he goes, "Okay, man, here's the deal. You can take away if you EQ. You can do subtractive EQ, but don't brighten any. You can't add anything." So again, it's a little bit of a curveball, but you know, I just went along with it and did it. So that's the way I mix the record, and we get done with it. And John Fry calls me into his office, and he's like. I'll imitate him because it's kind of a requirement because he talked like Jimmy Stewart. So he was like, um, I listened to these mixes that you did of Alex's record. And uh, here I've got a Joe Hardy record that he just finished, too. I'm going to play these two. And so he plays, literally plays Tom Cochran's Life is a Highway <laughs> that Hardy had done, which was a big hit on the radio oh, at sure, the time. I'm sure I remember it well. And um, and then he put on Alex's record, you know. <laughs> Do you notice that there's no high end on your mix? And I go, I have noticed that, John, but I was not allowed to add any brightness or EQ to the whole record under the instructions of the producer. Alex didn't want that. That's why we rented all those EQs. He's like, well, I'm paying for it, and I don't care what he says. So you take these mixes, and you go up to the SSL, and you brighten them up and get them ready for mastering, and we'll have to do the rest in mastering. So... Um, so that's what I did. I just kind of did an overall EQ on it. And then Larry Nix, I believe, mastered it properly. And um, it ended up with a really cool sound. Um, you would never know listening to the record. Yeah, it sounds kind of old-timey and cool, you know. And um, Did Alex say anything, like, after the fact? Like, did you, did you brighten my mixes? Yeah, he, he's, you know, smoking a cigarette. And I saw him next, and, you know, he's in the hallway or something. He goes, Say, man, I, I like our record, man, but I don't know who fucked with it and put all that high end on it. And I go, yeah, I kind of heard that. I don't know who did that either. You know, <laughs> I never fessed up that I was forced to. At least part of that was was me. Um, but yeah, that's how me and Alex started working together, and uh, we got along great, man. We laughed all the time. We we just had a blast making that record. And um, fast forward to quite a few years later, they were finally going to make a new big star record and you know at this in those days i would go out and uh, meet with a and r people for arden and shop bands that i was working on and try to get people record deals and work with me if i got them a deal all that kind of crap and i got the word from jody stevens um who worked at arden and the drummer from big star that alex wanted to make a new record and um he he i can't remember what the money amount that he wanted but it was it was really low for the time you know it wouldn't be low now but i mean it's it'd be about average now what what people spend on records but he wasn't being greedy or asking for a whole bunch of money but his stipulation was is that he was going to write the record in the studio no a&r people could come to the sessions and hear a single note of it and when we handed it in he wasn't going to listen to any bullshit about change this or that that we were going to turn in a record and that was that so if somebody could give him x amount of dollars and accept by those rules good cool so when i was meeting with a&r people the very first person i brought it up to is like I can give him three times that m amount of money, but we've got to hear the songs before we go in, you know. And I remember calling Jody like, "Gosh, the very first guy I brought it up to at Geffen says he wants to do it and all this." So he goes, "I'll call Alex." And it took about five minutes. He called back and said, "Nope." 
you know, he's he's serious about it. If, he, if somebody wants to make a record on him, it's got to be under his terms, and we're going to write the record in the studio. We're going to walk in the mornings with no song. We're going to come out of there that day with a song fully recorded. We're going to do that ten times till we have a record. So um, he stuck by his guns, and he finally, you know, finally that's that's what we did, and it was a blast. Um, he had one thing prepared kind of before we came in um, and he'd been listening to this Baroque composer named George Mufat and you know it was like harpsichord music and, and chamber music and um, he had me go get music stands for everybody so it's like a high school music teacher he's walking around the room putting a piece of music in front of you know Jody and uh Ken Stringfellow and John Auer from the Posies they were, they were the, who filled out the rest of the band and himself and they were all like Alex this is cool but um, one, one of them did read music but the other was like I don't read music and he goes well just do your best and when they started playing man it sounded like if you've ever seen the old Andy Griffith show when they're getting the band back together to play in the gazebo, it's like, <laughs> and all these squeaks and noises. And yeah, I was Barney with the cymbals. Yeah, and uh, I was practically pissing myself laughing. I go, oh my god, <laughs> this is what we're gonna do. Oh my god, what are we? Just hang on, man. Let's see how it goes. And it, you know, that that song's on the record. It, it ended up being called Alex's Funeral, I think. We, where we did a dun 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 dun, and there may be one more instrumental, but it turned out okay. But it was really rough and loose. But from there, they just dug in. They'd come in in the morning and um, write a song, record it. So anyway, I was hired to be the engineer and the mixer on that record, which I was thrilled to do. Everybody wanted to make the new Big Star record, regardless of what it was going to sound like or turn out to be. It was a cool thing to, to work on yeah. due to their history, even and. Um, so I was really happy when Alex requested me to be the engineer mixer guy. And we were, fast forward, we were um, about two days from finishing mixing the record. And I come in, and Jody's there sitting on the couch, and he goes, I need to talk to you in the other room. I went, oh, great. Here we go. You know, everything's gone smoothly. We've had a blast. He's gone back and listened now. He probably hates everything. We got to, I'm fired or whatever. And he goes, look, man, Alex doesn't want to make a big deal about it, so really don't really bring it up. Um, but he really appreciates your contribution and all that you've been doing, and he wants to make you also make you a co-producer and give you a point on the record. And you could have knocked me over with a feather. It's like, who does that, you know? Um, people talk about how rough he could be to work for, but, I mean, I, no one's ever when you're almost done with the record, you're like, can I give you more credit and more money potentially for your efforts for helping us on our record? I mean, it was, it was really, really cool. But he, what he didn't want, he didn't want me to come up, hey, Alex, thanks so much, man. I'm really, that's what Jody was warning me not to do. So, Gotcha. Yeah, I've, I've heard that he wasn't great with like displays of affection or fandom. No. And he could be mean about something, you know, depending on what mood he was in. He could... He could, I've seen him, you know, be less than nice to people or just, he just didn't suffer fools. You know, if somebody was being fanny with him, he just, he's really turned him off. He just soon walk away and go somewhere else, you know. Didn't he, you tell me that he said something to you about not understanding why people cared about Big Star? Oh yeah, we were, we, we were, uh, 
that's when we were working on Man Called Destruction. He had had me come over. He was staying at the band house, and he's like, "Have you?" It came up during the session. It was a day off or something. He was like, "Have you ever seen Woody Allen's um, What's Up, Tiger Lily? It's Woody Allen's first movie." And I said, "No, I haven't." And he goes, "Dude, I'm I'm gonna go get a uh, go to Blockbuster back in those days." And he got a copy of it, and we were gonna watch it. So we're sitting there watching it, and he starts off by saying, "Check this guy out. The star of the." The star of the movie is this uh, Japanese guy, and he goes, "Wait till you see this this star when he comes on screen. He looks like the Japanese John Fry." And um, I, the, from the second I laid eyes on, I started laughing, and we just, I, I was just laughing my ass off, and we were just <laughs> gut laughing. I, I couldn't quit laughing. Um, we we had partaken of a little herb as well before the movie started. That might have helped some too. But then in the middle of this hilarious moment and just having a good time watching a movie he st- he pauses it and he goes turns to me and he goes do you like big star and i go yeah i do and he goes why and i go i don't know why does anybody like anything you either like something or you don't you know i just said i think you guys made some beautiful records and they're very much to me a an imagination of a timestamp what was going on in Memphis in those days before I even lived here but I have this it's an it's an incredibly sad story um I think I just think it's I like it and um he just shook his head and he's like I don't get it man because we had like three good songs and then he just hit play on the thing again and we start laughing again that was it so it's like all of a sudden he was just bewildered or maybe it was a test to see if I was just again still just being a fanboy or something like that i don't know but he wasn't mean about it he just he's just like i just i don't get what the big deal is he said the same thing to my friend bob holmes when they they briefly played together in bob's band the modifiers like Mm -hmm. in the early 80s and he had a similar conversation with bob where like just out of nowhere he was like hey man do you like big star and Bob was like, well, I, at the time, I think Bob maybe only had heard like one of their records. And he was like, yeah, I think, you know, it's pretty good. And Alex was just like, yeah, I don't. People are always fucking asking me about it. And I don't, I don't understand it. Yeah, yeah. He would dig his heels in if you, if you pressed him about it. Um, I'll tell one more quick Alex story that, that was amazing to me. When we were working on A Man Called Destruction, uh, there was a magazine, Spin magazine that was laying on the coffee table in Studio A. And it was the 20th or 25th, I don't know what year. It was the anniversary of the Manson murders. And Charles Manson was on the cover. You know, the the scary, evil-looking picture that you see all the time. And um, Alex, we're working on something. He picks up the magazine, he looks at it, and he goes, I know that, dude. And he throws it back down on the table. I'm whoa, 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 stop. You don't just say, I know that. You know Charles Manson? He goes, yeah, we, we hung out, you know. And he tells me this whole story. I won't go into all the details, but that basically when he was hanging with uh, Dennis Wilson, he was in the box tops, and they toured with the Beach Boys for several years, you know. And so he was hanging out with Dennis Wilson during that time in his mansion in Malibu or whatever. And uh, basically Dennis said, I know this dude that can bring this busload of hippie girls over here for you know what. So um, they called him, and sure enough, it was Charlie and the girls. And... um, I guess they hung out for several days and did all kinds of stuff. Um, but and when they were getting ready to leave, the girls gave Alex a grocery list. And, 
you know, can you go, can you get this for us? And he goes, man, you know, I had lots of bread back then. I was young. And, sure. So I, I had to walk down this big hill, though. There's like this country store in Malibu. That's where everybody got their groceries and stuff. So I had to walk down this hill, and on the list was two gallons of milk. Because back in those days, man, you know, milk was in glass. In, it was heavy. And I was going to, man, I'm not hauling two. I, this is enough that I've got here. I'm just going to say I forgot I aced the milk. So I get back to the top of the hill, give them their grocery sacks, and um, they're going through everything, and they're checking off the list. And like, hey, man, you didn't get any milk. He goes, oh, man, I forgot the milk. Uh, sorry. They go, like, well, you need to go get it. And he was like, no. How about thanks for the groceries that I did get you? And then evidently some tussle followed. They wouldn't let him back in the house, and he got into it with the, with the girls and got in like a – a scuffle with them and got <laughs> away and, and shortly after that's when they things got weird with charlie and they quit calling him back and and Yikes. you know the rest is history i know that guy i know that guy <laughs> and he said that at one point he he said dennis had one of these big pit sofas and alex said he crashed out for the night on one of those and he woke up and charles charles manson's head was like at his feet so you know he takes a drag off his cigarette he's like so i guess you could say i slept with charles manson (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's i loved alex though he was a brilliant man time out before we get back to jeff powell i've got a few things i'd like to share with you the new loose opinions single and video for yesterday never arrives is out check it out at looseopinions.com or back to the light.net The full album, Shadow of a Shadow, drops August 20th. Pandemic willing, we also have some live shows coming up. August 7th in Evanston, Illinois, I'm playing an acoustic festival called Quiet Fest. Get it? August 10th in Chicago, Arthur is playing Sleeping Village. August 20th in Memphis, we have two shows, the Back to the Light Listening Party at the Memphis Listening Lab and a late night gig at the High Tone with Arthur, myself, and Glorious Abor. Finally, August 21st in Memphis at DKDC, we have the Loose Opinions record release show. To support me and Back to the Light, visit patreon.com slash jdrieger. Backtothelight.net will get you updates on everything. And now, the ad. When did you start using the lathe? Um, it was 2007 when I, when I started getting the idea of trying to talk Larry into getting it fixed up and teach me how to do it. And the answer was a resounding no. How long had it been out of commission? It still kind of, it always kind of worked, but he had, he would just refuse those jobs, you know? So I don't know, probably four or five years since he'd done anything seriously with it, you know, and pretty much he would, he was, Larry was done with it, man. You know, when I said, I just thought it'd be cool to learn as another tool in my belt as a producer engineer guy. And, um, when I at first asked Larry about it, you know, I said, Can, what would you think about getting this fixed up and showing me how to do this? You go home at five o'clock every night and on nights I don't have sessions, I could maybe cut some records and I'll rent the machine from you. You come in and start your day off with a little check on your turntable. Wouldn't that be cool? And he was like, no, it's like, I'm on medication because of that damn machine. You know, he said, no, no. What changed his mind eventually? I just kept pestering him about it kind of as a joke. I was just bugging him about it, and I was relentless. And he, I followed him out to his car one day. I was helping him carry something to his car. Like, come on, Larry, teach me how to do this, man. How bad could it be? 
And he finally just said, okay. I think he'd started to get in a few more calls. Vinyl was actually starting to come back, you know, in the beginning phases of the big resurgence that we're in now. And uh, he probably saw it as, you know, maybe, maybe I could make a little dough off of it. And, um, you know, I don't have to do them all myself, so the pressure's not on me. So he start, They one of the first things they did was um, – uh, I believe it was Big Star Third that Omnivore was putting out a uh, a box a box set of some of the outtakes and a lot of the tapes that were lying around in the vault then and making putting together a box set. It was one of the first things I think that Omnivore did, and you know now they're a great reissue label and and I they do tons of Memphis stuff. Yeah, and I, as it turns out, I'm their much their cutter so i pretty much do almost all their jobs now so i've gone back and redone those i've done all the big star stuff and uh, they never had rights to the first two records but as it turns out concord does and i do a lot of cutting for them so i actually did those reissues as well so i've done everything now and you did the chris bell too right yes i did the reissue of that and that they had done it once before but on the reissue that they had me recut it so a friend of mine and I were just talking recently in Chicago. What's up, Matt? About how the version you did sounds wildly better than the four men with beards version. Well, thank you. Um, mine, mine. It was an interesting story. I won't get too nerdy about how I did it, but mine, the Concord first two records, the uh, number one record and Radio City, they came off the master tapes. So I actually got to cut them from the master tapes and it was really the first in this series of stuff Concord had reached out to me and they wanted to do this Made in Memphis series with um, a bunch of the, the Stax records they own the Stax catalog it was, it's Concord Craft you know I don't, I don't know the hierarchy of all the labels sometimes but um, I got a phone call about do you have a preview deck you need to take a special tape machine to be able to cut records off of it and um so they said, do you have one of these decks? And I said, no, I don't. I don't really get that many requests to come off tapes. Most of the files come to me digitally. So uh, they told me their idea to do this series of records from Stax, and two of those would be the Big Star records. And I said, I will go get me a tape machine. So I did. Um, spent a lot of money on it, but I, I got it all back fairly quickly because of, of that series they hired me. To, I did probably did... 15 or 16 titles right off the bat with them and so wow. when i got the tapes um again i won't go drill down too much in it but there were basically no tech, no calibration tones on these tapes which is like you're just shooting in the dark so what i did is i went and got previous original original releases and some of the reissues and i basically had to align my tape machine by ear listening to the tape and it had Dolby A too which is another challenge to get that all calibrated just right so I just did it all by ear matching those old records and got it to the point where it got close then digitally I went into my chain and dialed it in to where I got it to where I thought it sounded really close to the first to the originals but maybe just a little bit better what's better it was in my mind just a little bit not quite as bright as those those records are super bright so i tamed that just a little bit and got to that point then i looked what i did in the digital world and said okay so i because i don't look what i'm doing i just do it so i got that and then i recreated that those eqs and compression all the stuff that i'd done to it in my analog chain and then i cut it off the master tapes directly to the lathe with no no digital no computer no nothing 
Cool. Well, yeah, I've. It took a long time. <laughs> well, the, your effort was worth it. Well, thank you, thank you. Those records are important to me. When, at what point does running the lathe become more your main gig as opposed to producing and engineering bands in the studio? Well, so if you'd say that I started in 2008 in earnest doing my first commercial job, so what is that, 13 years? So probably, I'm, I'm never going to say I'll never do another record again. I don't want to even say that out loud, but it's just the way it is now. Um, the last session, recording session I did was probably three years ago, with, and it was just an engineering for a project uh, Matt Rossbang was doing at Sam Phillips where I work now um, an Al Green session of all things oh so cool I kind of thought well, that might be a good place to jump off how do you turn that down <laughs> you can't <laughs> we just did one song with him but it was great I saw him live in Chicago uh, last I guess it was 2019 and it was one of the most fun and also most hilarious shows I've ever seen. That man gave away more roses than he sang. And also, I've never seen somebody chug so much Gatorade on the stage in oh, one really? show. I mean, he would... <laughs> That's awesome. Was he just sweating like crazy? He was sweating like crazy and just giving away roses constantly. And then like when the chorus of a song would come, the background singers would just sing it and he would straight chug Gatorade the entire duration of the chorus. That's amazing. That's great. <laughs> I was dying. La I mean, he would pound like an entire Gatorade while the song just rolled on. That's amazing. <laughs> well, I got the opportunity. I did his box set of singles for Fat Possum, um, and it was 26 7 inches, so 52 songs of the singles. And they had done the transfers off the tape before they given it to me. And... Uh, the very first song was I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. And he starts off, like, you know, in the before the music starts, they're like, he's kind of talking out loud or talking to himself, but he says, God damn. And he's a reverend now. So, you know, my very first one, I got to call up Bruce Watson at Fat Possum. I go, do I need to worry about that? He goes, what? He said, well, he says, God damn, before he starts singing the song. Is that going to make him upset that he's a minister now? And he goes, man, just... No, nah, just go with it. Just go with it. If he says something, we'll, we'll change it. But yeah. I thought that was a hilarious way to start it right off the bat. <laughs> so you said you're working at Phillips now. How do you transition from Ardent to Phillips? Um, in, the, in the nicest way possible. How can, you, how can you share this story? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of things happened that came together. Um, when in, in 2014, in a very short period of time, um, John Hampton passed away, and it was only maybe less, it was less than 10 days later that John Fry passed away fairly suddenly. And uh, Hampton had been sick for a while. But, you know, everything changed when John passed away. There wasn't really anything set up for anybody to naturally step in and take over the reins and run the whole show like he had done for so many years and the way he did it the way he wanted it done and um so pretty quickly there was a, a bit of scurrying about to see who that was going to be and um how was it going to play out and all this stuff um but as as it turned out, I'm trying to think of a you know a nice way to say it, but it just it was it wasn't handled properly. Larry, Larry, the situation deteriorated. It deteriorated fairly quickly, and uh, 
Larry had been in that mastering room for 40 years, I think, and he was best friends with John, and they had an agreement worked out where Larry would basically do all the mastering for Arden, and he didn't have to pay rent in that room. That deal got thrown out the window, and Larry was basically, you know, given this incredible high rent that he wouldn't be able to pay easily and um, or leave, and so he left. And then I was next, and I basically got a text from the studio manager one day that said that lawyers came over here and changed the locks on the door. So um, without warning, I was out of a lathe, and rather than make this something that, you know, I, I was, of course, hurt and shocked by the whole thing, but it has a very positive ending because at that time and still to this day, there's, there's not any lathes around. You can't just go buy one they're so rare especially one that works at all but within a few days of that happening to me and thinking well i i'm either done or i'm gonna have to move to somewhere else that has a lathe if i want to keep cutting records because i was you know all in by that point and i didn't want to stop um so by chance i found a lathe within about three or four days and made a deal to buy one and the guy gave me 10 days to come up. I just pretended like I had the money. I'm like, what's your price? And, you know, okay, can you give me 10 days to two weeks to come up with the dough? And he's like, 10 days will be fine. This guy had bought another lathe, and he needed cash. So I got the message real quick, like, okay, you got 10 days to come up with the dough. So How much does a lathe cost? Are you at liberty to speak? I can't say exactly, but way more than I had, you know. Um, if you could with what i've got into it now it's a house you know it's a small house i was about to say are we talking five figures six figures yeah um it's mine's probably over six figures by now so but that's adding and fixing and making it better and all that stuff yeah but uh anyway on day eight i'd gone to the i'd gone to the bank got approved for a loan everything was cool my credit's fine but on day eight i was actually on the way to go to the bank to get a cashier's check and i got a phone call and said the underwriters i'm sorry but they're not going to approve this loan because it's an old machine and they don't understand what it really does and what if it breaks how would you fix it and what's it worth if something were to happen to you is it just an old piece of junk so i'm sorry but you know, we can give you a five thousand dollar line of credit, and I'm like, well, oh, okay, I'll take great. that. There's my first five thousand, and I just scrambled and sold stuff and borrowed from friends and family, and ran up our credit cards. You know, I talked with my wife Susan, and you want to? Is it cool for us to go for this thing, man, or or am I done? She's like, go for it. So, um, with ten minutes left on day ten, I wired him the money. He called me right back, and he said, all right, man, it's yours. I just want to tell you something, though. I had changed my mind, and if you were one minute late, the deal was off. But a deal's a deal. Now, if you tell me right now that you don't really want it, I'd love to not sell it. But I'm like, man, I, what I just went through, you know, I need yeah. it. So I'll be coming, to, and it was in Salina, Kansas, of all places. So the guy who works with me, Lucas Peterson, we rented a van and got our asses up there and um you know we got we got it back to memphis so i've been a very short time i was cutting records again i got locked out in july early july i think and i was cutting i got the i got the lathe in august i cut my first record was the memphis heat record the wrestling 
thing with uh, Sherman Wilmot. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, that was in October of that year. So, and I haven't looked back since. So, that bad situation forced me to move to to move out on my own and get my own machine. Um, quit renting the machine every time I was using it, so I got to keep more of the money, um, and it's just worked out fantastic. And you've got to be a part of a revitalization for Sam Phillips, which has been really cool to see. Absolutely. Uh, they were just, again, 2014 was a weird year. The fellow that was the the, uh, the house engineer, Roland Janes, he passed away, I believe, in 2014, too. So they were in flux of trying to figure what they were going to do. The building needed a lot of work. And uh, Matt Rosbang, who at the time was um, managing Sun Studios, and he did revitalize that studio back to its original way that Sam had it back in the day and was doing sessions there and was doing well for himself. So they wrangled him to come over there, and he realized what a great space that it was. And then he kind of pulled me under the tent. And so, um, yeah, we they, the Phillips family is very supportive. And Hallie Phillips, who's Sam's granddaughter, Jerry's daughter, she was very key in, like, let's get this going again. And so, basically, I took what was the control room of Studio B. We gutted that, and then uh, Lucas and, and Jeff, Lucas Peterson and Jeff Smith helped design it and build it to what it is now and moved my lathe in there to get going. So, it's... Uh, that's where my, that's where it is to this day. Are you at liberty to talk about some of the projects you've worked on recently that you've been telling me about the Bob Dylan stuff, for instance? Uh, the Bob Dylan reissues, yeah. For uh, Sony Legacy, I just did um, uh, Highway sixty one revisited, Blonde on Blonde, and bringing it all back home. Uh, so yeah, I was thrilled when I got the call to do it. Those records are classic, and I've listened to them a million times. It was very strange when I dug in and started listening with engineer ears. Number one, you know, for a record to really have a chance of sounding really good, it needs to be shorter than probably 22 minutes or less is about as much as you'd want to push it. And you know, one of the sides on on uh, Highway 61 Revisit, I think, is 26 and a half minutes. So immediately you're like, oh, God, you know, this is going to be tough. And you realize that some of those records, they just don't they don't sound that great. It's the music that's so great. Um, so that was it's it never ceases to amaze me when I'm working on some of these old classic reissues, what they really sound like if you're analyzing with engineer ears, which I wouldn't suggest for anybody because you can kill your enjoyment real fast. But, you know, they did it before. So I went and got, again, I got the got the old the some of the reissues or the or the original pressings and i can look under the microscope and see how deep they cut it and get clues that way and how did they get it to fit they sure did you know 40 50 years ago um so if they can do it i can do it but it was a thrill to work on some of those um and then some of the other cool ones lately uh just worked on the new uh uh allison kraus and robert plant funny thing on that one was when the when they were sending me the files from the mastering house, uh, the email I got said, we're going to be sending the AKRP files over later tonight, so be watching for them. And no one had mentioned this project to me at all. I was like, great, thanks. I was too embarrassed to ask, what's AKRP? I just, me and Susan were just like, who could that be? What? what? And then finally someone said, Allison Krauss, Robert Plant. Went, oh, okay. Um, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And... Um, stunningly 
great record. So I'm excited about that one. And there's been some others. I just did a Hank Williams box set this week. Um, cool. For, for uh, Senior. Omnivore. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were from, 19, I think, 1952, the Mother's Best radio uh, broadcast recordings, um, all in mono. Um, but they've been preserved and, and worked on by Michael Graves, who does a lot of the Omnivore stuff. And he had, they sounded great. You know, usually those things are really crackly and staticky, and he got he got those all cleaned up. Not in a way that's so sterile that it doesn't feel right anymore, but it was he did a great job. When you're handling material by someone like Hank Williams or Bob Dylan, do you feel like a greater sense of responsibility to do a good job for this historic work? Probably somewhat, but I try to th- I try to treat everybody's record that way. You know, because I, I see so many people, so many indie artists that they're spending the money to do this it's not cheap it's not a it's not a poor man's game you know and so um if they're putting it all out there i feel it's my job to put put myself all the way out there too it's it may be even more important um you're not going to vince carter in new jersey some no. of these guys <laughs> right right it's it's uh, a <laughs> just you, coast yeah it's it's just uh the the indie the indie kept it going kept the vinyl industry going when it was almost dead and on life support and now this they're so backed up i mean these plants they're they're all just incredibly backed up now and i think some of the majors are buying up time and they're kind of scooting out the the indie guys and i'm fighting against that that's just you know we wouldn't none of us would be here if it weren't for those you know for those kind of small projects that kept it going I'm well familiar of the wait time as I've got, I've currently got a record that's, you know, in line to be pressed. What is it that causes like these, is it material shortages? Is it lack of people like you to cut these records? Is it not enough pressing plants? What, what is the problem? I think the biggest log jam is in the plating. So to people who don't know, I won't go through it in super detail, but basically I cut the master lacquers. I send them off to be turned into metal parts. Um, that's called plating. And then they take those metal parts and either they have a plant or they send them to a plant. They send the stampers to crush out your records and then like your test pressing. If everybody approves, then they stamp out the real job. That's the whole process in a nutshell. So um, the, there's just not... There's just not an, I mean, the popularity of vinyl is one of the problems, quote unquote, but um, there's just not enough plants, you know, and there's some, they're making new presses now. You know, a lot of this stuff has been cobbled together from machines that are 50 years old or 40 or 50 years old. And where do you get the parts? Or you got to machine the parts to, to get them to work right. And they break all the time and all that kind of stuff mixed with the pandemic you know plants happen to shut down for a few weeks when somebody would test positive maybe or something to that effect um it started getting behind then but then it's just uh materials in the cutting world there's only one plant in the world now that makes our blank lacquers so they're in japan right yeah yeah mdc's and um that can become a problem i've been okay so far i was using that brand before the fight there was a fire in the, in the apollo slash transco plant in the u.s and they were supplying about 75 percent of the world's lacquers and it burned to the ground and they lost everything so right now i haven't heard that they're going to start again it's been two years now 
um, somebody needs to in the world. You would think with with you know technology being what it could, why we can't get another company to make blank lacquers that are quiet and able to be used to be cut on. It's kind of baffling to me, but hopefully somebody else will. But, yeah, you have to manage all that out. You can't just go buy a bunch of them, let them sit for a year, and just use them as you need them because they'll get hard, and then you can't use them. They're very soft material, actually, that we cut into. So, I take it you haven't had any business drop up, drop off due to the pandemic? No. It was, it was in a way, embarrassingly so because I know so many people were struggling and you know my wife's a musician and so many of my friends are in the music business um you can't you know you have to be sensitive to their plight too i mean you can't go man i'm busier than i've ever been man i just don't know you know it's it's not cool you know so i try to to be mindful of other people's you know situations that they're in but it seems like we're coming out of it now and you know it's great to see all these bands starting to play out live again and um, you know, just get things back to somewhat, somewhat normal. Maybe I don't know, but yeah, I'm I'm working one guy in a room, so I could go in and when in the height of it, masked up and not talk to anybody, and you know, do your thing, do my thing. You mentioned your wife. How's Susan doing? She's doing great. Uh, she's in L.A. She just flew out there yesterday just for. Uh, it's her first airline trip since the pandemic, but she's... Uh, I just had mine. Yeah. Was it harrow, uh, harrowing? It was a little weird because the dude next to me kept pulling down his mask and like wouldn't wouldn't wear it all the way all under the nose the whole time, never over the nose. And you know, as soon as he took two feet off of the airplane, like while we were still on the ramp or whatever, he, the mask was off and thrown away. So... I, it was a weird. It was weird having to sit next to that dude. I didn't know. Like, I almost wanted to say something, but then it's like, do I really want to put someone else on this airplane in this position? No, I'm vaxxed, so I guess I'll just deal with it. Right. That's got to be the weird thing, you know. I, I would never get on a plane if I wasn't fully vaxxed, and yeah, you know, do they check or do they even ask you when you're getting? Nah, on? they don't check. They don't. You don't show a card. I didn't even bring my vax card. Wow. But yeah, she's out there just for uh, visiting a friend whose son is graduating high school. So um, she's just recently started going back to work, and she she did a couple of sessions. She did a her and Reba Russell, who's her background singing partner. They did a a session for Tito Jackson a couple of weeks ago, of all things, here in Memphis. Oh, fun! Which studio? I don't know the name of it. It's downtown, huh. off Main. It's not Bomar's place. Mm-mm. Huh? No, I, I I wasn't aware of it. Um, she said it was nice. Huh, cool. But she had never worked there before either. I'm not even sure who owns it. Gabri Waddell was the producer engineer who was running the session. So I don't think he's the owner of that studio, but I don't know. She got any new records or big gigs coming up? Anything like that? Uh, yeah, they're, her and Reba are going to do a show at the Shell. Right before the pandemic hit, they did a show at the Orpheum. Uh, not in the big, what the, what they call it? The Halloran Center. Halloran Center, yeah. Yeah. They Mark sold Stewart it plays out. in there. Yeah, and they, they sold it out and did real well. And then it was a, two weeks later that everything shut down, you know. So right. um, they're going to kind of recreate that, I think, at the Shell. So they're excited about that. That'll be in September or October. I'm not sure the day. I should know that, but I don't. How long have you guys been married? Um, 28 years. What's your secret, man? I met her on the floor of Studio A. She came to do a demo 
uh, when she was with her first band called The Mother Station, who ended up signing and getting a record deal. Um, the name rings a bell. Yeah, she was with Gwen Spencer was the other was the guitar player in it. Susan was the lead singer. They got signed to Adco East West, and uh, they did they did okay, man, for a couple of years. Their their single I think got up to number thirty, got in the thirties somewhere on the rock charts back then. So that's that's nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. So uh, you know, when that ended, she started doing her solo thing. We did do her first. We we she put out a Christmas record two years ago. And we did that on vinyl. So that was her first excursion. You know, for years she's been able to say, my husband cuts records all day, every day, and I don't have any vinyl. You know, Surely she was on something that was on vinyl, an Afghan wigs record or something. Yeah, yeah, that. But her own stuff, yeah, she, wasn't, right. she didn't have anything of her own to sell. So that was kind of fun. And as much as I thought I knew about the that side of vinyl, there's I still had a lot to, when you're... You cut your wife's record? Yeah, I cut it, but, you know, selling it and making all the... Art, getting everything put together and she did a lot of that but that's neat um it still is thrilling man when you're holding that square foot of artwork in your hand and yeah and, uh, i know the feeling yeah it's great so tell me you guys have been together 28 years mm-hmm. what's your secret for keeping it together so long well you know i think part of it when we were younger is that one of the two of us was gone a lot man you know it's it's um we were the other thing is we were best friends before we got married and still are um so we genuinely like each other you know we made it through this pandemic too without killing each other that's that's we'd laugh about that but you know that's a serious problem a lot of people didn't you know they're like pandemic divorces are a real thing yeah um so uh the main thing is of course we love each other a lot but it when you're when you're one of she would tour you know she went on the road with the afghan wigs for several years and um she was in cat powers band they toured the world and so when she's gone and i'm at home holding down the fort you know it's just when you get back to get or back in my younger career when i'd be going all over the place to to make records um sometimes she would come along for a little while sometimes she couldn't depending on what was going on in her career so i think just the being able to be apart and then back to it makes getting back together um even better when you see because you genuinely miss someone and know that you know absence makes the heart grow fonder they say yep or absence makes the heart grow fondue (laughs) that's cheesy oh oh um but yeah man i also got really lucky she's incredibly talented and you know she's still it gives me goosebumps when I hear her sing. You know, she people ask me all the time, "Does she sing at home all the time?" And I'm, the answer is, "Yeah, she does." You know, she's like const- cooking, shower, yeah, all the stuff, playing, playing piano, just playing the piano and trying to come up with something new, or hearing something on TV or on the computer and running over and trying to figure out how to do it in her way. I mean, she yeah. she does that a lot of the cover songs that she does. She just completely changes it to her her way of doing it and stuff and her steady gig was at um itabina downtown in that in the that restaurant itabina that's above bb king's but she's just doing that a couple nights a week now so but she's uh and she produced she she was managing and producing uh mckenna bray for a while and she's always got something going on awesome oh she's also been just i can say it now since june 1st uh she's the new trustee for the memphis uh recording for the memphis chapter of the recording academy oh neat 
cool for next two years well sounds like you guys have a uh, lot of cool things going on we try to keep it exciting you know and try not just to i i have to watch it now that i'm so busy that i don't just you know let that i'm only human and i do the best i can you know and um i'm really lucky that i have lucas working with me because he helps me a lot and if it were just me there's no way i could keep up do you find that you have to force yourself to schedule time away to to rest or uh, because i know i I have a hard time saying no to things when i have a cool idea i'm just like okay let's pile that on yeah yeah my main thing i'm learning now is don't overpromise because i used to pretty much be able to say i can get your record if you get me the everything i need the files and the fill out the paperwork i can turn your record around probably by the end of next week you know it'd be a standard thing to say now i'm saying i'm telling people two to three weeks from the time you get me everything i need yeah and if i can do better That's still than that, pretty fast yeah, i think yeah they're they're happy if i can beat that so but like okay i got i got a phone call yesterday at four o'clock can you i know you're too busy but can you cut a record for me on monday and i'm said who is it and they said sturgill simpson and i said yes i can so you know sometimes and they were a really good client too you know it's a label i work for all the time so um, yeah so i can always make exceptions when somebody really needs me to stop the world and fix a problem or something cool like a sturgill simpson record yeah i can do that it's good to be a man in demand i guess i guess <laughs> i i still just really what i'm most lucky about is i enjoy doing it I, I love doing it as a matter of fact and um i can't see doing anything else right now so well cool well jeff thanks for doing this you're very welcome it's great talking to you and good seeing you man yeah you too enjoy your time back in memphis i'm i'm making the most of it okay man thank you that's the show thank you to jeff powell Thank you to Graham Burks for hosting us at your studio. Thank you to Arthur with two H's for the opening theme. Thank you to Joey Pegram for the closing theme. For music, news, and episode archives, visit backtothelight.net. And until next week, take care, y'all. Back to the Light podcast network at backtothelight.net.